we got the beast breached. We've got Dante at the edge of the cliff. We've got <laughs> this hideous monster sitting there looking at them with the face of a just man. But we're not ready to deal with that monster just yet. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that, as I always say, slow walks through the masterpiece that is comedy, a work that is so complicated, so wild, so beautiful, so brilliant, that it deserves a very slow and steady walk. We're at lines 28 through 45 of Canto 17. If you're just dropping into this episode, you really seriously might want to go back and check out the episodes before because this is a sequential podcast in which we start at the beginning of Inferno and walk down. We're way down in Canto 17 of 34 Cantos at lines 28 through 45. The beast has breached on the edge of the cliff and Virgil is about to give us more information. So here we go. My leader said, now we've got to change course a bit, heading over there where the foul beast has pulled himself up. So we clambered down on the right-hand side and took 10 steps along the edge taking care to keep clear of the sand and its flames. And when we got close to the thing, a little farther on, I saw some people sitting on the sand right where it drops off. That's when my master said to me, So that you go back with the full experience of this circle of hell, go and see what's up with those guys. But cut your conversation short. While you're away, I'll talk to this thing to see if we can't get a ride on its strong shoulders. And so along the very edge of the seventh circle, I went all alone to where those people sat in their misery. Okay, several interesting things about this passage. Already you can see that there's a couple problems in it. Ten steps? Ten? Why ten? We're going to talk about all of that and some interpretive knots that have developed over the centuries of commentary in this passage. So let's start off with Virgil's words. My leader said, now we've got to change course a bit, heading over there where the foul beast has pulled up. Obviously, this thing hasn't pulled up or breached itself on the edge of the cliff right next to him. They've got to get a little to the side where it is. And if you remember, they're walking down this dike, that phlegathon, the river is flowing down. They're standing on, as we were told last time, a hard as marble edge. And now they're at the very edge of the cliff and they've got to kind of come down and somehow still the edge of the seventh circle is protected from the snowfall of flame that is this circle and the sand that catches on fire from those flames. So there has been much discussion over the years about this, the right-handed turn. They do actually seem to me to turn right. If you remember, the dominant turn in Inferno is to the left. And forgive me, left-handed people, but in Dante's day, the left hand and left-handed people were considered sinister. Sorry, please don't at me. I don't think this. Remember, I'm a gay man who already dealt with homosexuals in hell. I don't think this. I'm just telling you how it goes culturally. Left-handed people were considered sinister or something wrong with them, and the left hand was often the bad direction. And thus, it's always been a turn to the left in comedy, except once before, they turned right. Remember, way back at the Heretics, in Circle 10, they come through the walls of Dis, and they make 
a right turn so that Farinata arises back and to the left of them out of his tomb. This is the second time it strikes me that they turn right. Both of these moments are transitional moments. I think that's the thematic value here. It's not that somehow they have turned from a sinister path to a just path in either case. It's that they have come to a major division. First, into the heretics, out of the ordering of the seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, avarice, anger, you know, down through the seven deadly sins. And then suddenly we get to the heretics, which is not a seven deadly sin. So we turn right, indicating to us that the whole notion of how this thing's getting written is turning. And here we're about to do the same thing because, listen, you know, we're at Canto 17. You know, there are 34 cantos of Inferno. There's a lot of Inferno. And you know, we're about to enter the eighth of nine circles. And you surely think to yourself, if you don't know Inferno, you surely think to yourself, wait a minute. Well, you know, the Lustful got one canto. The Gluttonous got one canto. Some people got two. The Homosexuals got two. But the Violent as a whole got several. This thing must really slow down. And it does. We're going to really slow down when we hit the eighth circle of hell. So my idea is that we're turning right to indicate a change in the structure and the poetics. However, I should tell you that there are many eminent critics, and the most eminent is Robert Hollander, who say there is no right turn here. Instead, they've been walking down the right side of the embankment, and this is just a continuation on down that embankment to the very edge, and they're not actually turning right. I see a turn here to the right, and that this beast, this monster, is breached over there a bit. But it's one of those bits that's a little unclear and that you can make work either way. Now let's talk about the number of steps. The poet says we clambered down on the right-hand side and took 10 steps along there, taking care to keep clear of the sand and its flames. Almost every commentator says that 10 steps is just an approximation. It's like saying, oh, we took about 10 steps. Oh, I don't know. We took a few steps over there. And a lot of people claim that this is not symbolic. Singleton is the big one, claims this is totally not a symbolic number. Don't read it as symbolic. There's nothing to it. I'm not so sure. I don't know that I can make a numerological claim about 10 steps, but I think I can make a poetical claim. And that is the poem has not yet been this detailed. And in a canto that starts to heighten the rhetorical language, that starts to use metaphors and synecdoches and similes and paraphrases more and more, that is more about poetic technique almost than it is about plot, it strikes me important to see the poem getting this detailed, 10 steps along the edge. It's part of the heightened vision, the heightened poetic vision. And while 10 steps may seem a minor bit to hang that on, I think it's in the overall sweep that the poetics are becoming more self-conscious, more visualized, more fulfilled. The details are becoming 
clearer. We're not just watching in people up on the wind like in lust. We're actually watching the direction of either their hair or if they were in clothing, which they're not, they're naked, but if they were in clothing, the way their fabric of their clothing blew, or maybe the winds of lust blowing Virgil and Dante or Vir blowing Dante's cape. I mean, it's as if we had gotten that detailed back there, which we didn't, and now we are. And this is going to play out in the eighth circle, which is going to be the most visualized bit of Inferno so far. And in fact, play out through the rest of the poem because Purgatorio and Paradiso are just as visualized as the eighth circle of hell. And when we got close to the thing, a little farther on, I saw some people sitting on the sand right where it drops off. These people are sitting on the edge. And I just want to point out two things. One, that the three different kinds of sinners in the circle of the violent have three different positions. We have those lying down like Capaneus, the blasphemous, lying out on the sand. We have those running around like the homosexuals, not able to stop. And we have those sitting here on this. Sorry, I don't I mean to laugh. It's just very funny to me that the homosexuals would always be busy because, well, as a gay man, I think that it's just part of our nature to always be running around, <laughs> running around in some way. Sorry, that's horribly stereotyped. But we have three different <laughs> spatial positions of the sinners, lying, running, and sitting, and we're about to come to the sitters, the ones that are just sitting there. I think there's a lot of thematic importance here. One is that these sinners we're about to meet are on the very edge of violence. And remember, we're about to drop over the edge into fraud. We have met the beast of fraud already. And it seems important to know that the people we're about to meet are the kind who can sit on the edge of violence and, <laughs> as it were, hang their legs over into the circle <laughs> of fraud because these people ride the line between fraud and violence. I just want you to keep that in mind as we move into the next passage in the next episode. And that, you know, Dante is attracted by these people sitting over there. This is different, and we should just point out, this is very different from the walls of Dis. This sequence is somehow echoing that moment in the walls of Dis in which Virgil has to negotiate to get them through and doesn't and eventually gets saved by the heavenly messenger. This passage is echoing that, and there Dante is attracted by the demons up there and the, shall we say, otherworldly figures here. At this juncture, he's not attracted by those, although we've certainly discussed this monster that breached itself long enough, but he's notice is attracted by sinners, by humans, by people, by people like him. And that will prove important as we move forward. Let's move on in the passage. That's what my master said to me, so that you go back with the full experience of this circle of hell. Notice Virgil seems to be catching on the motivation here, that we need a full and detailed explanation. Go see what's up with those guys, but cut your conversation short. While you're away, I'll talk to this thing to see if we can't get a ride on its strong shoulders. This is what's so fascinating. Dante is going to walk away. You're going to hear it at the end of this passage and going to go see these other sinners. But we are never going to hear the conversation between Virgil and the beast of fraud. Instead, it is dropped from the text. It is to use the fancy literary word, a lacuna, a gap in the text. How does 
classical poetry convince fraud to give them a ride. Or if you take the old way of seeing Virgil as an allegory of reason, how does reason convince fraud? This must be quite a conversation that Virgil and this beast have. I'm just going to tell you the plot. Virgil's going to pull this one off and is going to convince this beast to take them down to the eighth circle of hell. So what is it that they say to each other? And while we're at it, what language do they speak? Do they speak <laughs> Latin to each other? Do they speak Florentine? Do they speak Italian? What language does this beast and Virgil speak? And what words do they use? Again, at the walls of this, Virgil had to be saved by a heavenly messenger who came down and opened the gate for them. Here, he does it on his own. We're, again, connecting poetry to fraud. The classical poet is able to get the image of fraud to let them on down into the eighth circle. This surely has all kinds of symbolic and metaphoric resonances, and yet it's dropped from the text. Yet we never hear this conversation. This is the one moment, well, there are a couple more in Paradiso, but this is the one moment in Inferno when I can actually tell you, gosh, I wish that Dante had had the courage of his convictions or something and written out this conversation, but maybe he's dropped it for reasons that are thematic, or maybe it was too tough to write, but whatever, I wish it were there. I want to know how classical poetry convinces the beast of fraud to drop them down into the level of fraud. So the last bits of this passage, along the very edge of the seventh circle, I went alone to where those people sat in their misery, alone. This is the first moment in which Dante goes alone to see some sinners. Dante was left alone, connecting this passage back to the walls of Dis. Remember when Virgil went forward to try to negotiate with the demons and get them through the walls of Dis, this passage is like that, and the pilgrim was left there standing on his own, shaking in fear as Virgil tried to negotiate their way through. Here, while the pilgrim has been afraid and shivered at the beast of fraud, he doesn't seem to be afraid anymore. He sets out along the very rim by himself. And if you have vertigo or just afraid of heights, just think about what's going on here. He's skirting along the very edge of a very steep drop that a waterfall is coming over. It'd be like if he's standing, I don't know what, right at the top of Yosemite Falls. <laughs> or if you've ever hiked in Yosemite, he's like on the lip of Vernal Falls or Nevada Falls. And he's just going to walk along that lip of that cliff just a little farther along. This would be a little bit of a terrifying place to be. But our pilgrim seems up for it, and alone he goes. There is something crucial here about going alone to see the final sinners of violence. I don't want to overplay my hand, but I want to say to you that part of it is because Dante's family is implicated in the sin of these sinners sitting on the edge of the cliff at the end of the circle of violence. But there's also something about here, Dante doesn't, well, is it too strong to say, need Virgil. 
Virgil does prompt him to go on, so it's not as if Virgil is just, you know, um, filler material. <laughs> it's just extraneous to the plot. Virgil does push him on, but after we've sworn on comedy, after we've had discussions of fame, after we've dismissed Brunetto Latini, and maybe, as we're going to have to talk about on down the line, dismissed Brunetto Latini again with the Beast of Fraud, which probably comes right out of Latini's own text, after we've dismissed him in so many different ways and are trying to figure out a new way to write, it's also important to walk out on our own without Virgil hanging by us. See, Canto 17 is not transitional. It's poetic. It's about finding that voice. It's about doing it on my own. But we're not doing this on our own. We're doing this together. We're slow walking through Dante's Inferno, passage by passage. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it if you don't mind. Drop down on the Apple and Google page. See the rating place. You can rate it and drop a comment there. I would much appreciate it. It does a lot for the analytics. And just to be completely self-absorbed, my memoir, Bookmarked, How the Great Works of Western Literature F***ed Up My Life, is just now out. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books as an ebook. You can find it all over the place. You can download it to your Kindle. You can get the paperback version. I'd really appreciate it if you check that out because, hey, sometimes we get to do things on our own and I got to write a memoir on my own, not, as I usually do, a cookbook with my husband, Bruce Weinstein. Otherwise, come back to Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon.